This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. We'll begin in the time-honored tradition. Before we have any Bible study, what is it that we do? Pray. Yes, and we shall do that again. So may I have a, may I have a volunteer to pray? Oh, oh lovely. Let's Father, we thank you for this time set aside to study your word. We pray, Lord, that you would honor us by your presence and you would meet us in our need, Lord, that we may see wonderful things out of your word. Amen. Oh, All right. We are going to be looking at Acts chapter 3. And, uh, but before we do, um, we'll go over the, the, the study that we did two weeks ago. Uh, so these are the notes. We'll read them. We can have a little discussion if people uh, like, but just to give us a little bit of background to put us on the same page. Um, so we start, last week we started in Acts 2 verse 22, where we find that Peter is conducting his defense of the events that have been occurring in the temple on Pentecost and Shavuot. Right? So they're in the, in the temple courtyards. He declares that Jesus was a man proved by God through miracles and signs. This same Jesus was resurrected by God. So what sort of body does Jesus have? He has his own body. Right? The same Jesus. Resurrection is the sign and proof that God has made Jesus the Messiah. When you get into uh, the book of Acts, they're constantly saying, you saw this. This was seen. He is alive. That's the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Death cannot hold the Messiah. Death is not part of the original creation. It was introduced to the creation following the fall of Adam. Prior to death, there was just life. And after death, there remains life, however, in another form. Examples are Jonah calling to God from Sheol. Right? That's what it says in the text of Jonah. Anani mebet in Sheol. I am in the belly of Sheol. But what is he doing? He's talking. Praying, repenting, thinking. He is, in some form, alive. He is not in soul sleep. Samuel and the witch of Eindor. The witch resurrects Samuel. What does Samuel do? <coughs> he, he talks. He gives a prophecy. Samuel is the only prophet to give a prophecy after he's dead. Right? So death doesn't even stop a prophet from prophesying. Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. <coughs> they are alive. They are talking. Lazarus and the rich man in Sheol with the spirits of the martyrs at the throne in Revelation. The cloud of witnesses in Hebrews all exist, all move, talk, and interact after death. Death was not part of the creation. It is here. We all have to pass through it. But it itself is not the end. Then we also discussed that there were seven things created before the world. Uh, from the Babylonian Talmud, Nedarim 39, side B. There was somebody who really wanted to know that, and she is not here. Anyway... Those are the Torah, repentance, and uh, some of the verses, uh, some of the places have uh, a verse to read. So if someone can read Psalm 90, verses 2 and 3 for me. 
Daphne. Anyone got that quickly? She got it. Read it out then. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, "Return, O children of man." Okay. So, the uh, the thing there is the the word. Is, um, can also be used is returned shuv is also the same word for teshuvah repent so it was created before the foundations of the world okay, that's how they they go through the Bible with a fine tooth comb and they read the text in a fine tooth comb and in fact in the second temple period you didn't read the Bible you heard it right and so the the sounds that the words make are important so what they do is they find verses that say that before the, 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 the mountains were made, therefore before there were the heavens and the earth, God had already preordained a returning, a return, which in Hebrew, teshuvah, is also the same word for repentance. So they will say, repentance was made before the foundation of the world. And they will also say the Garden of Eden is in Genesis 2 verse 8. It also says that God made a garden, mikedem. Uh, from the, from the beginning, or even from before the beginning. Gehenna, the throne of glory was made. Uh, that's in Jeremiah 17, 12. The temple and the name of the Messiah, which they get from Proverbs 8, 22, where they talk about the name uh, of the Messiah that existed before the foundation of the world. We note that in verse 33, this is of Acts, that Peter declares Jesus to have received the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. Okay, what's the problem with that? Didn't he get it at his baptism? Right? And so, you know, you, you, you read these texts and suddenly you realize, what, what is he actually talking about? What then occurred at the baptism? Well, obviously he got the Spirit. It's unclear as to who exactly does the pouring out of the Spirit. So the, the text in, in uh, Acts 2 verse 33 is he has been resurrected, he has received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, he received it from the Father, and has now been poured out onto all flesh. And so now we have a theological dis 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 discussion, maybe not amongst ourselves, but definitely amongst the two churches of the West and the East. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father, or does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? Right? And uh, we have never agreed ever since. Okay. And so in our creeds, we have what's called the filioque clause, which says that we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Son. Right? Whereas if you went to the Eastern churches, anybody around here, they would say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Because of the way that they read the text, they received that Jesus went up, he got the Holy Spirit from the Father, who then poured out the Spirit. They would say that the person pouring out the Spirit would be... Jesus, I will be the Father, not Jesus, because as he says, I've got to go so that the Father can send the Spirit. Okay? So the Greeks have a very particular way of reading the text. As the Western churches uh, add that uh, the, the whole Trinity is involved. Uh, throughout Peter's defense, he reminds the people of what they have seen and heard. Faith comes by hearing. 
Okay, Romans 10. No one's reading this event. They're all seeing it and they're all hearing it. The kingdom of heaven continues to advance through the verbal proclamation of the gospel. Okay? We actually have to go forth and say something. No one just prints lots of Bibles and throws them at people, hoping that they'll pick them up and read. And the, gospel, the, the kingdom also advances with the visible signs of the Spirit's power and activity. They see things, they hear things. Jewish theology. Uh, we had a discussion that it has always been a heart issue. What has always been a heart issue? Everything. Write these laws on the heart, it says in Deuteronomy. Create in me a clean heart. Circumcise your heart. Take out your hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, etc. So in Acts 2.37, it says that the hearers were cut to the heart. Immediately asking, what do we do? Not, what do we believe? Why? Where are they? They're in the temple. What are they doing in the temple? Yeah, they already worship God. Right? They don't need to suddenly go, oh my gosh, I didn't know God existed before. You're absolutely right. Okay? They're cut to the heart. They knew that something is affecting in, the, in their heart. They always knew that was where, where it was going to be affected. And now, now they want to know, well, what do we actually do? What do we have to do? Um, there's always a struggle for Protestants. Most of us are probably Protestant in this room. And usually when we start saying you have to do anything, we start having heart palpitations. Okay? And uh, we have images of Martin Luther and doors and nailing things. Okay? Except that the text clearly says they are. What do we do? Okay? Doing and believing and the heart are always inextricably linked in Jewish thought. Peter says, repent. That's a doing thing. And be baptized. Or oh, it's a heart thing, sorry. And be baptized. That's a doing thing. Something practical. Note that Peter does not mention the blood of Jesus. Hey, you're just in the temple, you've had a fantastic experience with the Holy Spirit, and not once did he say, well, you look, the blood of Jesus is what's going to set you free. In fact, we're not going to start talking about the blood of Jesus until a lot, lot later. Those that will repent and be baptized, remember, repentance is very important in Jewish tradition. Why? Because it was created before the creation of the world. It was one of the seven things that were there before God even started creation. Uh, those that do repent to be baptized, they will receive the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. So in a small summation of what the Holy Spirit has been doing, or we've been learning, it's the Holy Spirit has been the medium for the instructions and teaching of Jesus. The Spirit is a promise, and it is a gift. You can be baptized in the Spirit, even if already possessing the Spirit in some measure. When the Spirit comes on you, you can receive power for witness. In the past, the Spirit spoke through David as a prophet. And in the last days, will be poured out on all flesh for prophecy. Note, that's from the book of Joel, not tongues. Although that does happen. There is the use of tongues, human languages, at Pentecost. But the actual uh, prophet, uh, prophet Joel says the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. And all will prophesy. Acts then summarizes the behavior of the early community involving table fellowship, almsgiving, daily prayers and meetings in the temple, and devotion to the apostles' teaching. Note, not Jesus' teaching. The text indicates that it is the apostles who perform signs and miracles, not everyone. Unity of the early community is demonstrated through behavior. 
they feed each other, care for each other, eat with each other, and uh, take care of each other. And so we had a discussion on uh, two weeks ago on the Didache, which is called the Teachings of the Apostles, that first century document, uh, which was in the canon for the first 300 years of the church's life. And if people want to know what the early church does, then I suggest you read it. Uh, and you will see how the early church thought, how they behaved, what they thought of, of the, the spirit, what they thought of prophecy, uh, how they handled communion, how they handled baptism. Some of us probably remember the discussions that we had. Anyone remember what, what type of water you're supposed to be baptized in? Living? Yes, living water. It had to be flowing, had to be living. And if you, and then what, what temperature had, what was the water supposed to be? Really it didn't matter, but it says if you can, do it in cold water, and if you have, warm's fine. If you haven't got living water, just a few drops is fine as well, right? At the end of the day, they don't really care. Right? Isn't that interesting? That's the cool. And so, but here we are, two thousand years later, and we still argue about this. And yet the early church said, listen, if you can, do a full immersion. If you can, do it in cold water. If you can't, do it in warm water. Use a bath. We don't care. Take a shower. If you haven't got any water, a few drops is fine. Right? They're not, and yet we'll come along and we'll, we'll get very, very concerned about this. But the early church already talked about it. And we just forgot. Which I think is uh, strange. But the early church is, is described in the book of Acts as uh, focusing on the teachings of the apostles. And so I think it would be a probably good idea to, to look at what they said. For those of us who may want to uh, return to the early church. All right, any questions on the first two chapters? Have I shocked everybody? Stunned people into silence? Okay, great. Well, then let's uh, continue on uh, with Acts 3. We'll read Acts 3, with the whole chapter, and then go through... Uh, the state worse by worse. Um, I'll start. <coughs> it does not matter what version of the Bible we're reading, it doesn't matter what language of the Bible we're reading. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And Peter said, Simple gold I do not have, but what I have I give, give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, look. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And the healing of the stones and the walks and the intelligence into the temple. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him that he was the one who had been sitting for arms of the temple's people gates. And they were filled with amazement and astonishment at what had happened to him. 
one he was claiming to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the at the so-called portal of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we have made them walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his sin. Servant Jesus, whom we delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this fact. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Take now, brethren, remember that you did his weakness. But those things which God foretold by the man of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. <coughs> that he may send Jesus Christ, priest you before. Whom heaven was received until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses said, The Lord your God may raise up to you a prophet like me from among your own people, who must listen to everything he tells him. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. And to all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So, on an initial surface reading of uh, Acts, is there anything there that jumps out? Is there anything there that you always notice? Or there are sometimes verses that you swear were never in the Bible before you opened the Bible today? Okay, that has happened to me a few times. There's a man who jumps out. Yes. <laughs> All right. Okay, so let's, let's go on with uh, verse 1. All right, so it says, one day Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. That first sentence, what is it that, uh, is there anything there that uh, is interesting? <coughs> they had everyday prayer. Uh, in, the, in the temple, and we'll get a description of the temple in just a minute. Um, there were three prayers a day uh, that were f formulated. Uh, the first one 
uh, was started in uh, mid-morning, around about nine o'clock. Uh, Hebrew, you call it Shacharit, and you still do that today. Then the second one uh, was uh, mid-afternoon, around about three o'clock, and it's called Mincha. And uh, these are all att attached to sacrifices. And the fourth one is at sunset, it's called Ma'arif. And sunset changes as you go throughout the day, uh, throughout the calendar year. So, these are, who, who's going to the temple to pray? Okay, so what's the question? Where are the rest of them? Yeah, I mean, how many disciples have we got in this, in this story so far? 120! Right? Or 3,000! And here we get to Acts 3, and how does it start? One fine day in the middle of the night, right, two dead men got up to fight. Yeah? When, when does this story occur? We have no, no knowledge. Which time period is it? Is it one week after Pentecost? Is it halfway through the year? It was once upon a time. Once upon a time. That's the, the way the story is. It just once upon a time. We have no clue how long it has been since Pentecost. So we have two disciples. But we know there's a heck of a lot more. So where are they? They went down another street. They went down another street. They said, oh, I'm not going to those schmucks in that uh, synagogue. Not walking with them. Okay. What do you think? They went somewhere else. They went somewhere else. Right. Okay, there's a good question. That's a, there are several questions to ask for. One, where are the rest of the disciples? And two, why are these guys going to the temple to pray? So let's ask, let's ask the first question. Where do you think the other disciples might be? Now the text doesn't say. So you're going to have to either look for some other sources or, uh, as people do in the Talmud, make stuff up. <laughs> we're, we're, what are some of the options? We don't have to pray at the same exact time. Okay, but it's the time for prayer. Some could already be there. They're praying in somebody's house. Right, they're praying in someone's house, maybe. If you had the temple, though, why would you own, why would you ignore it? Okay, what were the disciples told to do? Where? Right. Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. So where might some of them be? Right. Australia. Yeah. So we actually have, we, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Um, we, this is called the Acts of the Apostles, yes? And what we do from now on is we pretty much only focus on a few of the Apostles. Right? It's not the Acts of the Apostles. It's, you can call it the Acts of the Few Apostles if that's what you want. It really is about the Holy Spirit. The, there are histories about what some of the other Apostles did. What happened to Peter? How did Peter end up dying? Anyone know? Okay, he was crucified upside down. Everybody seems to know that. Which book is it written in? Well, it is written in a book. It's just not written in a book that's in your Bible. Right? Uh, it's in, written in a book called The Acts of Peter, oddly enough. Okay? And um, 
and, uh, <coughs> uh, and, and there's another book called The Acts of John, and there's also a book called The Acts of Thomas. And so you end up with these characters, uh, mainly written by a guy called uh, Lucas Charius, who was the disciple of John, the, the apostle, who when John was on the Isle of Patmos writing Revelation, he decided to write down what the rest of the apostles did. He did not finish his work, we only end up with a few details, and the books, the, the actual copies we have of these, have been heavily, heavily edited through the years. We do not have any originals. By the way, we don't have any originals of these either. Just so you know. And, um, and it's in that book that you find that uh, the tradition that Peter went to Rome where he was crucified upside down. We all say it, we all believe it, none of us seem to know where it actually comes from. Okay? Well, there's also a tradition that Thomas that after, after Jesus uh, had ascended and after they had had the Holy Spirit moment, they all went back to their room and they said, well, we actually probably should do what Jesus said, which is go to the ends of the world. So they divide up the, the world. And they say, okay, you're going to go there and you'll go there and you'll go there. And they get to Thomas and they say, Thomas, we've got a great plan. You're going to go to India. India. And what did Thomas say? Absolutely not. Okay, I didn't like India. Okay, and that's uh, he did not like the whole idea, so he left. He said, "Okay, I'm done. I'm out of here." And he went to Antioch. Okay, where if you happen to be a Syrian Orthodox Christian, you will acknowledge that the founder of your church in 52 A.D. was Thomas. Okay, and uh, on his way to India. <laughs> okay, uh, and because uh, God does an interesting thing with an Indian merchant and uh, somehow smuggles him all the way to India. So it could be possible that the reason why we only discover Peter and John here, and again they appear as, as, as a team uh, later on in the book of Acts, is that a large section of the rest of the apostles had actually headed off. They had actually started the, the plan. Okay? Um, we will see if that's true a little bit later, but that is perhaps one reason why we only see a couple of the apostles in Jerusalem actually uh, uh, mentioned at the time uh, here. Because we know who the others are. We've mentioned them in Acts 1, all by name. Right? We've even mentioned the replacement for Judas. So we know exactly who these characters are. Well, later in chapter 8, it says that all the believers were driven out by persecution except for the apostles. Yes. Yes, and so you, the next question is, which ones are they? Because it doesn't mention their names. But we'll get to that one again when it, uh, when it occurs. And as a, as, a, as a heads up, what did Jesus tell the apostles to do in Acts 1? Go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then you get to Acts 8, where are they still? Judea. In Jerusalem. <laughs> and you go, boy, man, these guys are just not listening. They're full of the Holy Spirit and still disobeying. Now, isn't that an interesting theological thought? Okay. Um, anyway, so here we have one fine day, Peter and John go to the temple. Next good question. What are they still doing in the temple at the appointed time of prayer? Obviously, they're praying. This is, they're still Jews. Yes, they are. And when you go and pray in the temple, what else is going to occur in this wonderful, fine establishment? There will be sacrifices. And uh, there will be incense. There will be hymns. There will be songs. There will be discussions with prophets and uh, other teachers. Uh, this is a quite a vibrant uh, community. 
And you can see that the early believers, even full of the Spirit, are still going to the temple to pray at the appointed time. And they haven't... Uh, this sort of idea that uh, once Jesus rose from the dead, all the Jews turned into Christians and started building churches is just not true. Okay? So here we have them actually going to the temple at the appointed time, which is uh, they're, they're doing the Mincha uh, prayer, uh, which is still done, still done today. Now a man who was crippled from birth okay, was being carried to the gate called Beautiful. All right, so... Where's that, I hear you ask? Okay. Do you want to make some comments about the size and shape of our wonderful design? Okay, you see these maps here of the temple? This is courtesy of, of Neville. Actually, uh, Neville. Ne So can you just describe some of the layout of this structure? Okay. Um, and then we'll make a few comments as we go. You guys can make comments too. If there's something there that you see. So the, the, the broader picture one, um, uh, you can see in the center of there, you've got the temple proper, which is actually just this building here. And then around that, several other buildings. Um, and so this is east and this is west. So on the east side, there's a court, the Court of the Women, which has got four big lampstands in it. Um, and the, the disciples can mingle in there, as well as the women. And then outside of that, you have a very low wall. Can you see that? A rectangle. That's the Corvusare, um, and that's the wall past which Gentiles should not go on pain of death. And we have recovered more than one of these inscriptions that gives the exact wording to say that uh, if, you, if you're a Gentile and you cross here, you know, your blood will be on your own head. There's a copy of it in the uh, Israel Museum. And I think. Uh, Paul was referring to this when he said the dividing wall of partition between Jew and Greek has been taken down. I think that's a clear allusion to this dividing wall which separated Gentiles who had to stay outside from Jews who could go in and, and into the temple uh, precinct properly. Now around that you then have another wall which is a square shape, a square plan and that's the original size of the temple before Herod enlarged it. And Herod actually doubled the size of the Temple Mount platform. So he, he extended it southwards to have this great big um, building called the Stoa, the marketplace in the south, and northwards again, and then in the corner there's the uh, Antonia Fortress where there was a cohort of Roman soldiers keeping an eye on things going on. And also extended it westwards, but not eastwards, because there's a fairly steep slope on the east side, so it would extend that way. So he, he doubled the size, and so that, and there's porticos, in other words, uh, shaded uh, columned archway, uh, walkways all the way around, or three three sides, and then on the south side there's a particularly large one, and it's called the marketplace. And so, for example, the um, 
when Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers and he turned over the seats of those who sold doves because he wasn't going to help the doves. Um, that happened almost certainly in there. And people, when they were coming up to, uh, you know, from far and wide to the temple, particularly at the uh, festivals, they would have to, to do several things. They would have to change some money into the temple silver, into Phoenician silver, and, with, and use that to pay the temple tax. And then they would go and buy their sacrifice, whether it was two doves or uh, a lamb. And that would happen possibly in the stoa and in a roundabout. And then they would go for a, um, they would go for ritual cleansing. So they'd, they'd find someone who's operating the mikvah and go and cleanse themselves. And then they would be ready to go up onto the Temple Mount. And that would be, so if you look, um, there's, on the southern wall, there's two, door, two gates, and a, there's a double gate and a triple gate in the wall of, along the bottom of the door. Can you see that? Along, along here. Um, the double gate, um, there's two long corridors and then they go up steps and they come out on the surface of the Temple Mount. And the double gate is where they went up and the triple gate is where they came down. So they have a one-way system going there. Um, now, the, as for the beautiful gate, it's, um, it's not marked, mate. It isn't, is it? Yeah. Actually, we don't really know where it is. It probably could be one of three places. Um, and I'm suggesting to you, so looking at the, the map of the center of the Temple Mount, the beautiful gate could be what's called the Nicanor Gate. In other words, the one kind of in the middle of the compound here. Um, and that's as, more or less as far as ordinary members of the public could go. Uh, the, the men could go a little bit inside there to, to see what was going on, a little bit further in than the women could. Um, but it seems odd that it has this name, Nicanor Gate, and so why isn't that referred to by name? Uh, the other possible place where this uh, lame man could have been sitting would be on the east gate, which is the one at that end of the compound. Um, and certainly you get a fair bit of traffic there, people coming into the temple at that point. And the other possibility is that he was actually sat on the outside, of, at the top of the steps, by, by the double gate entrance on the, on the steps, where an awful lot of people would actually have to come past him on that route. I prefer that idea. That's, if I was begging, that's where I would sit. Because okay. you get most people coming by, you'd, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd be on the lookout for generous Gentiles as well as generous Jews, which is you wouldn't get generous Gentiles in those other two places I mentioned. But it, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but it's, a, it's helpful to understand what's going on and how people moved around this space. And the other, the other feature to point out is um, Solomon's portico, or porch, which is mentioned in the passage. And that goes all the way along the east side. So, um, and it's mentioned more than once in Acts. And maybe it was a favorite place because it was uh, particularly roomy, or I, I don't know. It certainly got the shade in the morning, anyway, when you were sat there. Um, but yeah, so Solomon's porch. 
all the way along the eastern side of the temple, along here. Just like everything else in Jerusalem, uh, is completely misnamed. Okay. Like the Tower of David has nothing to do with King David, Solomon's porticos had nothing to do with King Solomon. Um, the, the, there are many differences between the first temple and the second temple and even the tabernacle. Uh, the, the, the temple itself, the, the actual physical structure, the dimensions of the temple are well recorded in the book of, uh, of Exodus and you cannot change the size or shape. So that was always going to be that way. And if they ever build a third one, that's exactly what it's going to look like. Okay, uh, it's not incredibly fancy, not incredibly ornate. And um, on top of the roof there, where we end up Jesus uh, going to get uh, his, his temptation, they um, would have a little hatch and they would lower people in a box uh, to go and clean the Holy of Holies. Right, because the, uh, the high priest can only go in there how many times a year? Once. once, okay, just once. Okay? So who cleaned the darn thing, right? And uh, so the way they, they had an ingenious way of fixing it up. So what they would do is they would um, have their workers climb on top of the temple and hop in a box that had only one facing. It was completely enclosed. And uh, they would go in and then they would lower the box with the opening at the wall. So the only thing they could see was the wall. And then they would clean it. And they would lower them down and then pull them back up again. Okay, and then just swing the box over and lower them down and pull them back. And that's how you would clean the inside of the Holy of Holies without actually anybody physically uh, seeing it. Where is it? It's a description of how they clean it in the Talmud. It's in the Mishnah. That's correct. They, that's, that's one small problem. They could clean the walls, but they couldn't touch the Aaron. And they couldn't clean the, that would have had to have probably been something that the high priest did when he went in as part of his service to, to God is also do some tidy up, suit the floor. Yeah. So not always good to be the king. Right. Um, so we have, a, we have a gate today called the Gate Beautiful, right? Everyone knows where that is? That's the Golden Gate, right? The Golden Gate or the Gate Beautiful. Um, except that in Hebrew it's actually not called that it's called the Sha'ar Rachamim which means the gate of mercy mm-hmm. right? and, uh, and uh, Rechem is the word for mercy or, or compassion or the official word for compassion but it can have that connotation it's also a very strong deep love uh, sometimes in the Psalms the word for love is actually Rechem um, Rechem is also the Hebrew word for womb Right? which gives you a, shows you some of the difference between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. In Hebrew, the word for a womb is rechem, right? And the womb is warm, is safe, and it gives life, and it's a good place, yes? In, in Greek, anyone know the word for womb? Hysteria. Wow. That was one of Goldie's paintings. <laughs> Is that you okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. Do we need to clean the glass up? Tomorrow. Picture that. Picture that. Okay. So, um, yeah, and hysteria. So when when we people have a, a operation, it's called a hysterectomy, and uh, when someone's going crazy, they are in hysteria, hysterical. Right. So you can see that. The Greeks have taken it one way, but the Hebrews have gone another way. It's a, a, a distinction between Hebrew thought and, and, and Greek thought. 
All right. The gate called Beautiful, or the Shah Rechamin, the Gate of Mercy, that actually used to be where Jews used to pray. So 300 years ago, they didn't pray at the Western Wall. They prayed at that gate, actually 500 years ago. And, uh, and then over time, the Muslims planted a, a cemetery there. <laughs> and the Jews couldn't pray there anymore. Now, why were Jews praying at the Gate of Mercy? <clears throat> what traditionally is supposed to happen at that gate? Exactly, right. Ezekiel 41, there's a strong hope that one day the honor of the Lord, the Kavod Lanadai, will come back into the temple and everything will be done. Hence, it's uh, the, 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 the term, the Gate of Mercy. Um, that gate, of course, wasn't there at the time of Ezekiel. How do you know that? Because the gate that we all see today is Turkish. Okay, it's only 500 years old. Okay, so there's nothing to do with uh, King Herod. That uh, the actual gate uh, structure that we all call the Shushan Gate is actually underneath, and uh, just a little bit off to the side. Right? Uh, and how do we know this? Is because there's a model in the Heritage Center which uh, shows you where it is. Because one of our um, early missionaries by the name of Conrad Schick went down there, had a look at it, and then included it in his model. So now we all actually know where it is. Okay? Um, so the Jewish people, after the cemetery was built, they moved around to the west, to what we today call the Western Wall. And that's why they're there. Okay? They couldn't go to the south because there was a bunch of houses there. Right? And they couldn't go to the north because there was also uh, a bunch of houses there. They could only go to this little, little bit. Okay? And in fact, that the, you see old pictures of the Western Wall, it's tiny. Right? Because where there's a plaza today, that used to be the um, Moroccan Quarter. Okay? And they actually had uh, lots of houses there. Um, the kind of the ship model shows that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And they had a little, little uh, bit that they would actually uh, go. And it was higher up. So they actually, actually higher than they are, are, are today. It wasn't really a quarter. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was just a place. It was a place. Yes. Yeah, indeed. All right. So... The temple um, has several differences uh, than the tabernacle. What is one of the biggest differences? Okay, permanent, definitely. Segregation. It's in the temple you start segregating men and women. You didn't do that in the tabernacle. You didn't do that in the tabernacle in Shiloh. Where was Hannah when she wanted to go and pray for a child? She was standing right in front of the parochia. She was standing right in front of the, um, the curtain. And when she's praying, and then when Eli meets her, what does he not say? He doesn't say, hey, woman, what do you think you're doing in here? This is the restricted zone. How did you get in? He says, you're drunk. She says, no, I'm not. I'm praying for a baby. And he says, what's going to happen? Okay, he does not chastise her for being where she was. Okay, the, it's the tabernacle actually had, had a mixed community. It's only in the temple that you begin to separate. They separated Gentiles and they separated the women and they separated the priests. That was not the way in the original design. That is something that was added much later. Okay, and it might be why the prophets do not call for the rebuilding of the temple. They recall for the rebuilding of the tabernacle. tabernacle. Okay, which is very the one that's mentioned in, in Amos chapter 9, though, it says the God will restore the tabernacle of David, yep. which is the tent that he set up on Mount Zion, yep. just to house the Ark of the Covenant. Yep. And 
the remarkable thing about that was that it didn't have a veil. Yeah. David could go and sit in the table. Everyone could. could. Could sit there, and there was nothing in between him and the Ark of the Covenant. So the idea of, I will re-establish re the tabernacle of David, has these meanings behind it, that there will be no veil in the way. Yeah, actually quite a beautiful, beautiful thought. Okay, but at the time of Acts, at the time of the temple, they did have all these gates, and there was a gate called Beautiful. Do we know exactly where it is? No, uh, although I actually kind of go down the line that um, it's actually outside uh, uh, as an entrance way where Jews and Gentiles are going. It's more opportunity to uh, to 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 um, uh, beg. Also, uh, God. <clears throat> had a real a particular uh, rule. Anyone who was disfigured, what could they not do? Couldn't go to the temple. Now we might say, oh, that sounds a little nasty. Um, why would God do such a thing? It fits. It fits. It fits? It fits because you could only sacrifice a perfect animal. Therefore, the only people who could go into the temple could be perfect. Yeah. The temple was to replicate God. His priests had to replicate Him. Which means you could not have a priest who had a defect. Because if a visitor came and they said, So what do you use your, what are, what's your God like? What's, what does His priest look like? Well, if it was me, I couldn't serve the Lord. Why not? I'm, I, I'm not genetically pure enough. Right? And uh, and so you know, and, and and the same thing for the worshippers. Those that were disfigured or maimed, they had to sort of kind of be excluded. So what's being healed here is a, it's going to be a lot more. Okay. Um, now that might seem like a harsh thing, but think of it on the other way. If God allowed disfigured, lame, and crippled priests, what image does that give to the rest of the world? And he's the God of life, he's the God of purity, he's the God of perfection? No. So, the sacrifices were to be perfect, the priests were to be perfect, everything was meant to be perfect. It was to reflect him. Okay? Uh, that does not say that he didn't love those people. That does not say that at all. all right? that, uh, that's not... Uh, I don't, don't, don't think that the Lord went that way. Okay, so this guy is put every day... Um, probably by his friends or his family, right? uh, and he's begging in the temple courts. And when he sees Peter and John about to enter, he asks them for money. Uh, Peter looks straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gives him his full attention. So the guy's actually just uh, hawking his uh, arms, and he's not paying any attention to who he's asking his money from, just throwing his net out pretty widely. Okay? Peter and John, though, something draws them to this man. But the text doesn't tell us what it is. <coughs> Any ideas? Face. Sorry? Face. The spirit. He believed in God. Yes. <coughs> How many other beggars might there be? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but for some reason, this is the one that we're, we're going to get uh, some attention to. And we are not told how, why, or who. We don't even know the guy's name. Okay? Um, often, though, when, um, when you have verses in the Bible where uh, people don't have names, what, what do you end up doing in a tradition? In yeah, giving them one. 
Okay. So if you actually, if you cast your net widely enough, if you go into the Greek Orthodox sources or the Catholic sources, you'll probably find this guy has a name and probably a really long and glorious history as some living saint. Okay? I'm serious, you should have, you should have a little look. Uh, and, and where do we get this tradition from? We get it from the Jewish people. Okay? They give names to nearly everybody who does not have a name in the Bible. Okay? Whenever it says, there was a man uh, and he had two wives. And they go, what is that guy's name? What are their names? And they give them names. And they give them stories. And they give them uh, a life and a character. Uh, here, we're not told. Okay, uh, Peter gives that famous line. Okay, silver and gold are by none. Okay, but what I have, I will indeed give you. Taking him by the right hand. Oh, sorry. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helps him up. Instantly, the man's feet and ankles become strong. All right, so the healing. What's there and what's not there? Let's start with what's not there. They didn't pray, they just said. They didn't touch him. They didn't touch him until the end. He did not repent. There's no repentance. There's no repent and be healed. There's no just uh, tell me your sins and you will get a healing. There's just, look, you're asking for money, I don't have it. But what I do have, I will give you. What is it that Peter has? Jesus Christ. He has Jesus Christ. He has the power of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say that. The Holy Spirit is completely absent from this chapter. Okay? The book of Acts is the, is, the, is, the, is the book with the most references to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, almost with everything else combined. And yet in this chapter, there's no mention of it. And we have a healing, and there's no mention of the Spirit. There's no mention of power. There's just this. There's, there's not even a prayer. There's just they're going to prayer. But when it's time to heal somebody, walk. It's faith. Uh -huh. We have faith. They're most definitely. Okay. And what else have we got? They declare. They declare. They make a declaration in the name, right? In the name of. When someone says in the name of, what does that mean? It's not a magical formula. It's not something that happens like if I just tack on the in the name of Jesus at the end of every request, I'll just magically get it. It's an authoritative statement or authoritative command. Authoritative, authoritative command. It's an oath of loyalty. Okay, when someone says, I'm doing this in the name of the king, or I'm doing this in the name of Rabbi so-and-so, it's I am loyal to that person. I'm loyal to that king, I'm loyal to that, that piece of theology, I'm loyal to that way of interpreting the text or the Bible. You often see in, uh, in Jewish tradition, uh, Rabbi so-and-so said in the name of Rabbi so-and-so. They're following a, a line of, of authority. And here, uh, Jesus, uh, Peter is saying, in the name of Jesus, that's who has, I have... I'm under it. That's my authority is Jesus. Walk. And then what? Does the guy immediately get up and walk? They have to help him. Isn't that interesting? They gotta, he, he extends out a hand and then his, then his, then his ankles then become strong. Now, isn't that an interesting way of doing healing? Now, for some reason, the, the text tells us this way. Okay. Now, this is not. Don't make magical formulas out of this. 
Right? You don't sort of go, right, okay, this is exactly how you do it. Now, every time we see a lame person, this is exactly how we'll do it. We'll do the whole name of Jesus walk thing. We'll give them the hand, they'll get up, and when they're getting up, that's when it'll work. But it shows us a pattern. It shows us something that there was the oath of loyalty. There was a declaration. Uh, you didn't have to do a long prayer vigil or anything. And there was a physical action. There was a physical, I'm going to help you up now. Okay. There was a, uh, if you, I've got to take that step. Right? To, um, to, to, you actually, you actually kind of, remember there's this, there's this expression that says, um, uh, God doesn't drive parked cars or the Lord helps those who helps themselves. You know, all those Bible verses that are not in the Bible. Okay? However, sometimes the thought is there. Because uh, it says in the book of Numbers, uh, it says the children of Israel didn't have any well, any water, so they prayed to the Lord and the Lord gave them water. And then it says, and then all Israel sang this song. The well that the princes dug. Isn't this fantastic? So they needed water, they prayed for water, the text says God gave them water, what actually happened? A bunch of humans dug a well. Okay? So you end up with, yes, we will ask the Lord for something, and then do something. And you actually also see it here too. A declaration of faith, declaration of loyalty, but also a physical action. Did, did Jesus do the same? He did, didn't he, in some cases? He would say things and then a physical thing would occur. A mud, a spit, uh, all kinds of things. And then there were other times where Jesus just said, oh. Right? And so there's... Uh, doesn't, doesn't they help him to believe? When they take his hand and like, this is, like, this is real, you know, come up and... It's possible. Because there's, the, the text is just giving us a, a, a narrative, you can use the text to try and say what you like. You can say that. You can say, this is helping the man. This is all about the man. You could also say, they have physically had to do something. Imagine if, if they hadn't given him the hand. I mean, it hasn't happened because it's a what if it's not there. Right? Get up and walk. Well, we didn't. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll come back next time with the burger. Okay. Or uh, something. But, uh, but here we have him taking by the right hand helps him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles become strong. A miracle. Okay, he jumps to his, his, his uh, feet and he begins to walk. And what does he do? What's his first action? Praising God. Praising God. Yeah. Yeah. He enters the temple. Okay. First thing that happens, right, is not, I'm going to go home and tell mum. Or, okay, or, you know, I can't wait to go up to those people who used to spit and curse at me and go, no, 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 look at this. Okay? First thing he does, he goes to the place he couldn't go to. First thing he does, he goes to, he goes, I'm going to go be with God now. I haven't been able to do it. I've, I've talked to people who have done it. I've, I've watched people do it all my life. And now I get the chance to go and do it myself. And so the first thing he does is go to be with God. That's a good question. Does this man need a ritual? He might have already had one. Uh, his friends might have taken him down there. Don't know. He goes into the temple courts. So he actually doesn't go into the physical temple. So he might have actually only gone into the court of the Gentiles. They're definitely in Solomon's portico because he's holding on to 
Peter and John. But yes, he, he, for him to have gone into the temple temple, he must have had a, a mikveh. Yeah? He must have had a baptism. That's just a thing that would have, he would have done. Um, walking, jumping, and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to be sitting and begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. So several times now we get this name of this gate. So Luke, is uh, he knows his geography. And that's actually something that's unique to the Gospel of Luke and, and to Acts. Okay? He's very good at knowing places uh, and customs. So there's a good chance that he's actually seen this place. Okay? Luke actually has visited this place. Uh, particularly if you go down the Greek Orthodox line that says that um, Luke is actually one of the 70 mm -hmm. disciples of Jesus. Okay? Uh, so he knows exactly where they are. And they are filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So the beggar has been holding on to Peter and John. He had not let him go, okay? uh, which is interesting. So probably uh, this tells us that Peter and John probably walked into the temple with him. And said, okay, now you can walk. We're coming with you. This looks like fun. Um, they haven't, they have, we've stopped mentioning sacrifices or prayers at this stage, so we're not sure if they engaged in the actual uh, ritual prayer but a crowd of people start coming to them so they've, they've set up themselves in a place called Solomon's Colonnade which as we can see from the map is on the eastern side uh, and depending on where they are actually has access to the Gentiles too okay um, depending on where you are uh, uh, when Peter saw this he starts saying something so his address to the crowd. Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified <coughs> his servant Jesus. Okay, so starting off with his little speech, who's he talking to? The crowd. He's talking to the crowd, and how does he address them? Men of Israel. So, what do we infer from that? Jewish people, Jews. Okay, they're Jews. Are they just men? No. Right. Now, how do we know that? Because in Hebrew, even if there's even one man in a group of women, the address is to <coughs> is masculine. That's correct. Isn't that just awesome? <laughs> okay, you can have one thousand women in a room, and they can, and you call the 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 group of women after a female verb or a female adjective, but as soon as you add a little drop of XY chromosome, the whole thing becomes male, okay? Um, and so, again, men of Israel could be, he happens to be in the, the men's section, but he's in, we know he's in, he's in the Solomon's portico, so that it should be a, a mixed area. So I'll probably go down the line, you said, Goldie, that this is a, a good mixed crowd, but he addresses them as men, which does not necessarily mean there are no women. Okay, so why does this surprise you? Well, it's an interesting question, good Jewish question. I mean, if you'd sort of miracle, wouldn't it surprise you anyway? <laughs> it would. I mean, um, but this is just a, just a good stuff. Hey, why are you so surprised? You know, we do this stuff all the time. <laughs> why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? Okay, so what's he doing? Giving the glory to God. Giving the glory to God, yes. Okay, and I think that's a good lesson for all of us. 
I think I ha uh, don't want to get too critical, but too many times as you go through uh, life, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the ability to say, me, myself, and I have done, have done this. Mm. You know, the Lord is blessing my ministry. Mm. But we even, we even talk like that. Uh, it's unfortunate. The, the apostle here has done a miracle. He has given himself, the, says, I, I'm a servant of, of Jesus. I have authority to him. You can walk. And it has nothing to do with me. This has got to do with, who's it got to do with? It's got to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does that tell us? That's a theological statement right there. What does it tell us? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. God chose that name. Okay, God chose that name. What's Think name? theologically. God of the resurrection. Okay. Alright. Yes? God is a, a living people, a life. Okay, who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Our God. Our God. Okay, but if someone said the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is he? He's Jehovah. He's Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. He's the God of the Old Testament. Amen. Right? We don't say, oh, the God of love. This new God. The God of Jesus. Right? And that, unfortunately, is uh, something that you see in the world today. There was a thing that occurred a couple of hundred years after Jesus called Marcionism. You've heard of this? Mm -hmm. Yes? What is, what is Marcionism or Martian? And not the little green man uh, from another planet. He was a, a Christian for a while there anyway. He was a bishop who, when he was reading the Hebrew Bible, he could not reconcile the God that was being presented in the Hebrew Bible with the God that was being presented in the Greek Bible or the New Testament. Okay? In the New Testament, you've got a God of love, he's compassionate, he's merciful, he comes and dies for you. Okay? He's going to resurrect you. You're going to get a mansion in the sky. You're going to get a reward. It's a wonderful God. And then you read the God of the Old Testament, and what do you get? You get, you know, God's going to, you know, smash his enemies. He's going to just kill, kill innocent people. Whoever, everybody, firstborn, babies. He's going to kill babies. Wow, what type of God is this? Okay, and uh, and he floods the world. There's all kinds of stuff. And people had a theological problem with that. And so one of the first things we had to face was this issue of, is God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And so you ended up with Marcionism. It was a very big movement, and it was finally defeated, and it is still here. Okay. Anyone uh, read a book by the name of um, Andy Stanley? Anyone know who Andy Stanley is? You do? I've heard about it recently. Yes, he's the son of Charles Stanley. Everyone's heard of Charles Stanley? Yes. He's a great big you know, pillar of the church. Okay, well, he had a son uh, who also became a big speaker, and he wrote a book called Unhitching the Church, Why the Church Needs to Unhitch Itself from the Old Testament. You should just stop reading the Old Testament. In fact, you should cut it out your Bibles. Don't, you don't need it anymore. And, um, and that's just reinvented Marcionism. It goes completely against Acts 3. Okay? When we've got a miracle, we've got ourselves in the temple of God, we have a perfect opportunity to turn around and say, guys, you all blew it. 
What are you still doing here? This is a silly place to be. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. It's all a lot of rubbish. Uh, the God of Jesus is the one you want. But instead, what you have is you have a declaration that says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did this. The God of our fathers, who was alive and busy doing stuff back then, is alive and busy doing stuff right now. As the book of Hebrews says, the God, of God is the same yesterday, today, and same guy. Okay? It's a theological problem and it's something that you and I have to wrestle with. And that's our issue. Okay? Not the Lord's. Okay, so he has glorified his servant, Jesus. He has, you handed him over to be killed. And uh, Mike version says you disowned him. What are some of the other versions got? Uh, this is verse 13. And okay, so he was rejected by people. Okay, he's presented as the Messiah and he was rejected. Okay, what I got disowned, denied. You got a denied one there. It's an interesting little Greek word. Uh, could go either of these ways, not a problem. Uh, but it does imply that there is a a, a turning away. And uh, some people will then turn around and say, "See, this is classic example of how the Jews have, you know, just rejected Jesus." What's the problem with that argument? Because so far, the only people who believe in Jesus are Jews. Right? The only people who are actually getting the Holy Spirit are Jews. You know, we're still... Yes. So we're still... Uh, this is still an inner Jewish debate. Is Jesus or is Jesus not the Messiah? It's an inner Jewish thing. And, uh, and so previously, Peter had, had said to a group of Jews okay, that you had handed over Jesus to lawless men. Who were the lawless men did, who did the killing? Romans. Romans. Okay. So now... He turns around to them and says, well, you did it. Okay? There's, you, you can't just take one verse. You know, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. You can't just take one verse and start saying, see, this is it. This is the truth. Um, Peter has said already in the same book uh, that multiple people ended up killing Jesus. Okay, you've disowned him. You've disowned who? Who have you disowned? Verse uh, 14. Righteous. Holy and righteous. Okay, so what do those two words infer? That he's God. Okay, he's holy. So that would be the, um, the from Leviticus, be holy like I am holy. So we're looking for the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, who uh, is going to be like God. And what does righteous? Tzaddik. Okay, Tzaddik means the righteous one. Which Bible verse mentions Tzaddik? Very famous Bible verse. Righteous branch. Righteous branch, that's one of them. Habakkuk 2.4. Yes, But the righteous the one, by his faith you will live. Right? In the sort of idea that the Messiah himself is going to be the Tzaddik, the great Tzaddik, the great righteous one. And so here you have two words deliberately used. You disowned, and he could have chosen a whole bunch of words to describe Jesus, but he chooses two big ones. The Kodesh, okay, holy, which is a word normally associated with God, and Tzaddik, which is the word associated with Messiah or the coming Redeemer. Okay, so you disowned this one. You've disowned both God and, and uh, Messiah. That's a pretty weighty thing to say, especially if you're standing in the temple. Okay, 
at the hour of prayer. Uh, and have asked that a murderer be released to you, which is, uh, we know uh, from, from the Gospels, Barabbas. And again, and then another little interesting play on words. You killed the author of life. Isn't that an interesting paraphrase? You've got holy, righteous, you killed the author of life. Okay? You killed the thing that started life. You stopped life in the thing that started life. It's an interesting way of, of, of talking. Okay, um, but that wasn't the end. Hallelujah! What's the next step? Yes, God raised him from uh, the dead, and we are witnesses. The resurrection is something seen. At this stage, it is not something read. It is something seen. They saw it, and not only that, probably a whole bunch of other people saw it too, because uh, Jesus didn't come back by himself. Okay, according to Matthew, there was a whole bunch of them. Um, and no matter how many times they tried to go find the body of Jesus, they could not. So there was no way to prove that he was definitely dead. And so uh, sight was a real big part of, the, of, early, of early being a witness. Okay. Um, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. So what does faith mean? Now, in here, we're using Greek. So this is the Greek word pistis. But if you were in Hebrew, what is the word? Emunah. Emunah is uh, faithful. Yeah, faithing. It's a verb. Well, actually, it's a gerund. But it's a, made from a verb. So it's an active word. Okay? And so by faith is not just something that was in your head. Peter didn't do this just because it was in his head. What did he do? What did he do that made this man strong? Spoke and acted. Right? Okay. He, so faith in Jewish tradition, it has never been just something you think about. Okay? That's called Gnosticism and that is something other traditions have. Faith, even when it's in Greek, even in context, is something that you can actually do. I know that sounds against everything we think from Protestant tradition, but in Hebrew thought, it doesn't, they, they don't see a problem. Faith without works is? Yeah. They just don't see an issue with it. Okay? We do, mainly because we come from a culture that likes to put a dot at the end of every sentence. Okay? And you know, that's pretty much it. Um, but faith in Hebrew is something that you will then logically put into practice. Blessed is he who hears my words and does them. Okay, says Jesus. And so by faith in the name of Jesus. Well, because we said it, we believed it, we gave our oath of loyalty, we physically picked this guy up. Okay, again, doesn't appeal to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit made this guy well. Um, okay, it's, uh, it's this in the name of Jesus. It is, is, is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him. Okay, or the faithfulness, or the walking out of that loyalty that was given this complete healing, as you can see. Now, brothers, okay, and at the moment, we're still before Acts 15. So when we say the word Adelphu, or brothers, that means Jewish people. Okay, only until we, once we get to Acts 15, then it switches that the word brothers will actually now start to include Gentiles. But we haven't got to that point yet. That's going to be a, a, a journey. 
At the moment, this is a very solid inner Jewish debate. So is there any um, issue here? We're saying God, and we're saying, sort of implying that Jesus is God? Oh, yeah. Sort of, <laughs> I mean, so how does this all fit together? I mean, how is God doing this? Jesus is God, and yet there's God? Is that a, uh, a well, hard thought in, in Hebrew or Jewish thinking? It's a hard thought in anybody's thinking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, as uh, David Pleggy always likes to say, um, I'm so glad Trinity Sunday only comes around once a year. Okay. When you have to stand up and start talking about the Trinity, as soon as you start talking more than five minutes, you're entering into heresy because no one really knows how to describe the undescribable. But there are many verses in the Bible itself that describe this undescribable. So uh, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah 48, verse 12 to 16, it describes that uh, the first and the last is the creator of the world. And the first and the last is going to be set by God with his spirit. You go, hang on a second, how does that one work? Okay, and so you've got the first and the last, you've got God, because it actually literally says, Adonai Yahweh Shalachani. Okay, the Lord God sends me, Baruch with his spirit. Okay, so you've got these three people, and Isaiah doesn't bother to unpack it, he just says it, and then moves on to the coming Babylonian crisis. Okay, um, it's a, it's a, the, 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 the Bible loves mystery, and the Trinity is, is mysterious. Um, and we ourselves, uh, a lot of, of a lot of liturgies do their best, especially in the in the Greeks and the Armenians, uh, to preserve mystery. They will say things in beautiful poetic language that will create a piece of theology that's so mysterious you could send, spend hours just unpacking what you've just prayed. Okay? Um, and they get that from the Jewish Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. I have a question before we get too far off from this healing took place. Um, people today try to heal in the name of Jesus. And they will even act, if you will, by offering a hand, say, walk. And it doesn't always happen. So uh, this act of faith, uh, then, then we have this, uh, this Question: Well, I didn't have enough faith, or he didn't have enough faith. What? Uh, how? How do we reconcile that phenomenon? Has this beggar got faith in Jesus? No. No. So. It doesn't say anything. Correct. But he hasn't. He's not a believer in Jesus. No. We don't even know his name. Okay. And we're never going to know his name until you meet him in heaven. Maybe. Right. Well, I, I'm talking also then about, about those who claim that they can heal other people. Right. People do claim they can heal other people, and I believe some of them can be true. Okay. But yeah, absolutely. The question you're asking is a question none of us can answer. <laughs> no. Why, why is it only? Why is it only? Why does the 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 book of Acts in Acts chapter two say, and the apostles performed great miracles? Why not everybody else? Could it be, as you said, that resurrection was seen by them and proved, if you read John 19.38, And Nicodemus, he who had come to him the first time by night, came also in bringing a mixture of myrrh and all alloys of about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices and is the custom of the Jewish forbearing. 
See, everybody sees Nicodemus wrapped Jesus' body. And now that I will show you 20. John 20, on the 6th, see? And the handkerchief of which had been over his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in one place apart. This is what they saw. Was seen so clearly. Yeah, the resurrection is seen. Yeah, was seen. And uh, their, their faith becomes so powerful. Yeah. And they became the channel of the power of God. Yeah. Just straight their hands and yeah. got healed. And today, we have so many doubts. We what? don't know. We have to exercise our faith. We take time to exercise our faith. Sure. Could uh, it be? Jesus, the reason? It, I don't know. Didn't you I can say the answer. Like what's that? We, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. G G Jesus himself yeah. says an amazing word. You know, blessed is he who believes and has not seen. And uh, yeah, because the, the the wonderful things that happen so far is is that they can they can turn around and keep saying these are the things you've seen. These are the things you've seen. We're bearing witness to what we've seen. And um, yeah. Uh, but for right now, okay, we do, he doesn't believe in Jesus, and yet he's going to get healed. So it's got nothing to do with his faith. Uh, I would, I'm very critical of people who like to victim blame and say that you didn't get healed because of the lack of your faith. That's just really nasty. Okay. <clears throat> but uh, why do some people get healed and some people don't? Why is it that over several hundred thousand Christians are murdered every single year? And we pray for protection and we, we love it where we're protected and we praise the Lord when we get saved from a car accident or something and these poor guys get their heads cut off. Um, Jesus, God, as we know, all I can say is God does not delight in the death of his saints. He loves all of his creation and, uh, and it's a mystery. I mean, Jesus sort of asked the question um, when he was asked, well, these people that the uh, tower fell on, were they worse guys than these others? Um, and he turns and then he says that no, but unless you repent, you will also perish. Then again, uh, with this um, man born blind, was it his fault or his parents' fault? Yeah. And and then he heals him. No, it's just for the glory of God that he's going to be healed, and we're going to glorify God. Mm -hmm. So that I think will be the reason he would get healed. Why was this guy healed? For the glory of God. Yeah. Yeah. Why was this person not healed? Same reason, Same reason. for the glory of God. Glory of God. Yeah, because yeah. Paul struggled with it. Yeah, he had some, some issue. Okay. All right. So, uh, now, brothers, this is these Jewish brothers. I know that you acted in ignorance. So here we are. We've just accused them. First of all, you killed him. You disowned him. You <laughs> rejected the Messiah. But you didn't quite know what you were doing. I kind of get it. Right. So, um, and he goes, and your leaders, even the leaders off the off the hook here. Okay, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. Okay, eventually, somebody had to kill Jesus, didn't they? Now, what does Jesus say himself? No one lays, takes my life, I lay it down. All right, so if you want to get really, really technical, this is assisted suicide. Okay? Um, you cannot kill Jesus if he does not want to get killed. And if he's going to die for the sins of the world, then sooner or later, somebody's going to have to do this. And uh, so we have to be very careful when assigning blame. But of course, they're having a, a real debate. They're humans. They've got the Holy Spirit too, but they're still humans. And they have this discussion. You did this, you did that. But I understand you did it in ignorance. But it had to happen anyway. Okay? Theologically. It had to happen to, to, for the prophets to be true. 
Uh, so, what's the call? Verse 19. Okay. Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Okay, so this theme, repentance, once again, very heavily strong in, in, in the Gospels and in Acts, uh, because it's a very strong Jewish theme. Okay, kind of lost a little uh, in modern, modern days. These days we like to have an altar call, and you, all you do is do the sinner's prayer and believe in Jesus. Okay, but the, the Acts 3 says, what do you have to do? Repent. Repent. And what's the repentance going to do? It's going to blot out your sins. Anyone read the blood of Jesus in there somewhere? Peter doesn't say. Okay, it's the blood of Jesus. It's your free, folks. Just carry on. You've got to remember. The one of the uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, says Jesus. And here again, repent. That is, turn back to the Lord uh, and your sins will be wiped out. Okay? Once again, this guy who couldn't walk, he didn't repent. Yes, that's right. He hasn't done any repenting yet. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't done it. And of course, the guy on the cross yes. didn't repent either. So. Right. There's that, so it's very interesting that, yeah, where does salvation come from? Will this be the, the way to propagate Christ by performing a lot of miracles? It yeah, could be. Yeah. Signs and wonders. Yes. Because uh, right now, Christ is not a human being. He was no longer incarnated. He resurrected. Yep. As a pneumatic Christ. He's a spirit enacting. He's also human. He's also human. He's also human. Yes, but because yes, in, in chapters 1 and 2, they're constantly saying, this same Jesus. Yeah. This same Jesus. He's a resurrected spirit. He is resurrected. He's resurrected in, and because his body's not there. Why? Because he's got his body. Um, and so, what else do you get? Not only do you have to repent, not only does our sins get wiped out, but something else happens. You get refreshed. Yes, some sort of times of refreshing. I actually don't know where that comes from. I tried looking that up uh, to see whether there was some messianic thought in Jewish tradition that uh, when the Messiah comes, it'd be. Something called the times of refreshing. I didn't. I didn't. I couldn't find it. Um, so it's an interesting phrase that uh, that it uses. I mean, we're not quoting a Bible verse here to say this is the times of refreshing that we get taught about in the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, but it is. It is uh, what what Peter tells us is going to come. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Uh, this would have been a really good opportunity to talk about the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do it. And that he may send, who's the he here? Okay, God. He may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Unfortunately, as, as he says, he says he has to remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. All right. Now, isn't that a piece of packed theology? What does God have to do to restore that he told from long ago. Before Jesus can come back. I mean, he, here we are. We're in the temple. We're standing literally before God. Okay, not that God's actually uh, physically in it anymore. Um, and he says he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. What does it mean for God to restore everything? That which fell. That which fell. Israel. I mean, Israel's already there. Okay. I mean, everybody. 
another mystery. It is. It is another mystery. Like, um, you know, we now start searching through the scriptures, trying to figure out all the things that have to happen. Okay. I think this is a promise God had given to Abraham. Because from your seeds shall bring a nation. Definitely part of it. Yes. And, and the ones shall rule over. And all the world will be blessed through you. So yeah, definitely, that's definitely part of it. The kingdom of Christ, you know, which is not physical. Yep. It's a spiritual realm. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting that he has says it's got to restore everything, whatever that everything is. And I guess we'll be reading the Bible till we're, till Jesus comes, trying to figure out what that everything is. I think it's going to include restoring the kingdom to Israel. I think it will, because isn't that one of the questions the disciples mm -hmm. ask him in Acts chapter says, 1? Jesus kind of says, well, um, that's not the thing to dwell on. You have other priorities. But he doesn't know it's going to happen. Correct. But it's going to be in God's time. Now, does everyone hear what that means? In Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask, and that was probably Peter and John too, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He says, well, that's up to God. He knows those times. And here again, we get that idea that there's times of refreshing. Sounds really good. And uh, you can get that right now, especially when you repent. And there's also going to be a time when God's going to restore everything, whatever that is. And, and it could be, and I think it is. You mean the political kingdom of Israel, in sense? That's, that's actually what they are referring to in Acts 1. Yes, they are. Yeah, I think they're talking about the days of Messiah on earth. Um, yeah, yeah. So this this has been promised through his holy prophets, and so the first of the holy prophets we, we is Moses, and we say Moses, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Okay, this is Deuteronomy 18. From among your own people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. What's listen in Hebrew? Shema. And what does it also mean? Obey. Obey. Yes. The word Shema, to listen, is also the only biblical Hebrew word you have for obey. So, when, when, that's a good question. It says, you know, you must listen to everything he does. You must obey everything Jesus tells you. And if you do not obey everything, you'll be completely cut off from your people. That's a, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Where in the history of the Jewish people do you find something that can kind of illuminate that places there is thing? Uh, you mean to be cut off? Yeah, from, from the people, God's people. Uh, you get God talking about that a few times. When people do certain transgressions, he says, take them out of the camp, you will be cut off. Keep doing this, you'll be cut off. Messiah will be cut off in the prophet Daniel, okay? which is a very interesting way to talk even though that's actually in Aramaic, uh, that section. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have spoken, have foretold these days. Right? So this is, uh, is, again, this idea that we're actually in the last days. Uh, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant. Uh, that's a nice thing uh, to say. God had with your fathers, God made with your fathers this, this covenant. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. So here we're talking about all peoples. At the moment still, though, we're, we're only dealing with Jews. Uh, when God has raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So it's very interesting that it says that to bless you by turning to you from your wicked ways, right? Yes. The because we often in the Western kind of church blessing and so many other things. Yeah, a blessing is, yeah, bless me with um, a new car, uh, a good job, a house, a beautiful, healthy child. And here it says, no, no, the blessing you're going to get is you're just going to stop doing all the bad stuff. 
That's actually really bad for you. And so the blessing will be you won't be doing the wicked ways, you'll actually be doing the righteous ways, the good ways. Okay? Because remember, faith in Hebrew is a verb. And so he's going to give people back faith. And they will not engage in wickedness. Hallelujah. We actually did a chapter in one day. That has never happened before yet. <laughs> Another mystery. Another mystery. <laughs> All right. So, uh, chapter four next week. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.